To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. John the Baptist was not messing around. Advent is traditionally, of course, John's big season. He shows up this time every year like a professional wrestling heel, swaggering into the wilderness in his camel hair outfit, calling out his opponents by name, pointing them out in the crowd, and proclaiming the beginning of the end for everyone who is comfortably smug and smugly comfortable. Some people, of course, thought he was the Messiah, the one that the Old Testament spoke about and that all Jews were hoping for. But John told them that he was just the opening act, someone greater than even he was going to follow after. And that made some people, of course, think that he might be the reincarnation of Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet famously taken up into heaven and a chariot of fire pulled by horses of flame. And in a sense, John was indeed the new Elijah, out in the wilderness, pronouncing prophetic words of divine judgment on those who believed they were safe and sound. In that way, he stands in the long tradition of Israel's prophets, those who challenge the people of God to do more than just talk about how devoted they are. John tells the crowd that they have to take action or risk destruction. And like Elijah, at least in Matthew's gospel, John just appears without any warning. In chapter 17 of the first book of the Kings, when Elijah is first introduced, he gets no origin story. There is no background. He simply crashes into a gathering of the royal court, tells the king that a terrible drought is coming and there will be no rain until he changes his mind and then immediately departs into the desert. Matthew gives us John in the same way. He is a brand just plucked from the fire of the presence of the Lord, still smoking and hot to the touch. He skips past the niceties and gets right to the fire and brimstone portion of the lesson. Hearing from John always puts me in mind of a Bible study leader who used to work with high school students in my hometown. He was a very careful teacher who loved the scriptures, and he must have really cared about teenagers because he put up with a rowdy bunch of kids every Sunday evening for years walking them very deliberately through the Bible, teaching them to feed themselves on Scripture. He was an unpaid part of the youth ministry team at our church, and he did not suffer fools very well. So you can imagine his frustration. I should, I just, I need to clarify real quick. I am not the guilty party in this story. Um, Because I realize when I'm about to describe what happens, it sure sounds like it might have been me. Uh, So you can imagine this gentleman's frustration after spending about an hour and a half unpacking the meaning of Jesus's words when he tells the disciples to be salt and light in the Gospels. And so as the gathering for the evening is wrapping up, the younger youth minister chimes in at the 
I mean, at the very end of the Bible study and says, but remember, don't be too salty. As if that was the real danger for upper middle class high school students in the American Southeast, (laughs) that they would be too devoted to Jesus and his gospel. Being too salty would have been a wonderful problem for us to have. John is probably a little too salty. He carries himself with the natural grace and manners of a rabid mongoose that has been, that's been kept in a shoebox for too long. He's out in the desert living on this meager starvation diet, dressing himself in clothing that Goodwill would never accept. And he is the one who is opening the door for the coming of the Messiah. Now, John's proclamation has a goal in mind. All good preaching does. He's not just harassing his audience for the fun of it, although it does sound like fun. He speaks with this relish and conviction and makes it clear that you have to make a response to what he says, a yes or a no. There is no room for an in-between answer. John wants to create that moment of decision so that nobody can walk away saying, well, that was interesting, but I'm not sure what I feel about it. I think this is probably driven by the conviction that John has about the nature of the kingdom, the God that he sees coming into the world and the Messiah that he expects. Because for John, the Messiah is coming to sort out the heroes and villains of history to do the thing that all the Old Testament prophets expected by kicking out the foreign occupiers from Israel, restoring the sanctity of the temple, and ushering in a wonderful new age in the history of God's own chosen people. That's the Messiah that John is ready for, one who bears the sword with righteous anger and deals roughly with his opponents. There is this raw intensity in his words, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I'm going to start opening sermons like that. (laughs) Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. That's a little insulting, isn't it? You're so replaceable, God could just point, and we'd have replacement children of Abraham just right here from these stones. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And later, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Thanks for coming to church. The chaff is going to be burned after the service. So the king is coming to clear the floor. The kingdom is coming too, just as John's audience was hoping for, but being one of the chosen people would not be enough. Just being an Israelite would not be enough. Hearts and minds and lives have to be in line with the priorities of the kingdom and the king, or else it might be the axe first and the incinerator next. So the only hope for deliverance that John holds out is to repent in a hurry as if your life depends on it, because it does. 
And if you're really serious about that repentance, you'd come out to be baptized by him in the Jordan as a sign that you were going to lead a new life from that point forward. Now, we know that John's words have consequences, especially for him. But it's because the stakes are so high that he holds nothing back. A prophet gets this privilege of being able to call things exactly as he sees them. No one expects a man who makes his own clothes out of camel hair and eats locusts and honey to be restrained and thoughtful or make a convincing intellectual argument. He is clearly a dangerous, raving madman, but he's not wrong. So John can open his mouth and drop these truth bombs on his audience without softening his language or worrying about whose feelings might be hurt. I am, to be honest, a little jealous. John can let loose. He doesn't have to worry about being a decent pastor. And if the powers of the world are going to have him dragged out and executed anyway, that he might as well speak the whole truth as loud as he possibly can. And this is Jesus's final forerunner, a worker in the harvest field of the kingdom who is subservient to Christ. John himself says it, I am not worthy to carry his sandals. But if John is the loud voice calling for everyone who can hear him to do whatever they can, to get right with God before it's too late, we often think of Jesus as the quieter, friendlier teacher. In this view, we get Jesus as the good cop to John's bad cop. But at a very basic level, the message is exactly the same. Jesus comes into the world to speak truth too, not just to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. John had his head cut off and passed to Herod's wife on a platter, but Jesus' fate was not that much more dignified. And that's because the message of love and forgiveness that Jesus embodied was just as radically disruptive to the order of the world as John's shouted words of judgment. To follow Jesus means following a Lord who was not satisfied just to be everybody's buddy. He proclaimed that the powers of the world and their attendant stooges were not as worthy of worship as God himself. And while he was not coercive, Christ was absolutely not afraid of conflict. As my professor Stanley Hauerwas was fond of saying, no one ever got crucified for coming back from the desert and telling everybody they just had to love each other. No. The life of Jesus and the life of Christian discipleship are a challenge to the status quo. So then where do we find ourselves this morning relative to this kind of proclamation? I'm convinced that while most of us are doing our level best to live as decent Christian people, when we start to get too comfortable or we think that because we have placed our trust in Jesus that we're immune to any of the consequences that John describes, we have walked into great danger. These warnings are for those who think of themselves as home safe and dry, who are satisfied that they need not worry about the state of their souls because they're generally good people. We have to throw ourselves on Jesus a veneer of general goodness 
is not going to be enough. We have to conform our lives to Christ. And where we're unable or unwilling to commit and to submit completely, we must beg for forgiveness and mercy. It's not a word just for us as individuals, although I think it starts there. It's also a reminder for us as families and communities that we have to repent of our sins and acknowledge our own shortcomings and be grateful that we have been privileged to be invited to partake of the grace that is offered to us by Jesus Christ. Gratitude should characterize all that we do. And that, sadly, is not how most people think of Christians. Most Americans, when surveyed, say that they believe that Christians are prideful, judgmental hypocrites who look down on others with a scornful self-righteousness. It is a great tragedy and such a large-scale and widespread problem that you and I might be tempted just to throw up our hands in the air and admit defeat because we don't think we can overcome such an overwhelmingly negative perception. But if we take John at his words, we know that we can actually do things and take steps to leave behind the life of sin and step into new identity by following Jesus, the Messiah. John will step aside and give center sage to Christ, as we'll hear next week. He is a servant in the kingdom, just as you and I might be. And if we are willing, then it is possible for one group of people in one place to gradually, by patient and faithful engagement, be those who embody the love of Jesus Christ for their neighbors. Now, it takes concrete actions, like hosting the children from Olive Crest here at the church for a few hours yesterday while their parents run errands or take some time for themselves, or agreeing to support the Salvation Army's overnight shelter for the homeless, or giving to their Angel Tree program, or volunteering to tutor at Fairview Middle School. In these things, we show that whatever you might have heard about Christians, we are here first and foremost to serve others as Christ has served us and not to glorify ourselves. It is the patient work of a lifetime. It is not nearly as much fun as calling people names. John the Baptist had one of the last fun jobs, but you see what it cost him. This Advent, my prayer is that we will hear John's words and take away from them not the bombast, but the content. And that in all that we say and do, we will seek to bring the light of Christ into the world more fully. It can be done by us as we serve those who are poor and needy, as we welcome guests and visitors into our homes and into our worship, but most of all, by consistently and by persistently setting aside our own desires and looking outward, seeking places where we can build others up in ways that are large and small and that may go unnoticed 
except by our Heavenly Father. Just like those who went out into the wilderness to hear John's preaching and to receive his baptism, we are being prepared to welcome the coming Messiah. So therefore, in this Advent season, as we anticipate his second coming, as we turn our hearts more and more toward the King, who speaks truth and promises forgiveness and eternal life to all who follow him, let us commit ourselves to following the gospel of grace and giving of ourselves consistently for the sake of others and for the sake of the King. Amen.